Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. Welcome to episode 137 of the Gateworld Podcast. My name is David. This is Diana. And this is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate. This week is the TimeGate Writers Panel discussion. Uh, Diana and I were at the TimeGate convention a while back in Atlanta, Georgia with Melissa Scott, she is an author of uh, the Stargate novels Secrets and Homecoming, along with Joe Graham, and Allegiance with Amy Griswold. Those books are part of the Legacy series, and uh, the last one, the fifth one was in August, was it not? Yep. Okay. Yep, it's a good, and it's a good read, too. The good. Legacy series is a lot of fun if you're a Stargate Atlantis fan, and it's kind of cool to release this while we're in the middle of the rewatches for the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this really is like the sixth season that, you know, never came to pass as far as being a TV show. This is yep. taking it into the realm of books. And they are a lot of fun, and you, all of the characters really do genuinely get followed. So have you read all of them so far? I have just started Secrets. Okay. I okay. just downloaded it. I love ebooks. Thank you, Fandemonium, for <laughs> ebooks. And, uh, you know, they have their issues, as you'll hear in this uh, panel that we did. But... Um, it is really fun to be able to, oh, you know what? I have to read Melissa's latest thing. So, yes, I recommend them. <laughs> Anything new going on before we jump into that? Um, no, not on the Stargate front. Just uh, working on my original novel and uh, teaching away. What about you? Uh, I just got promoted. Mazel tov! Gracias. Yes, that's wonderful news. Yeah. Great so news. It's actually, uh, we're recording this on a Monday, and the publishing date is on the Wednesday. It's not actually public knowledge yet. I'm really excited. Things are changing in in my life. Things that have gone good are becoming great, and uh, everything's just going really well. So. Well, and much deserved. Uh, thank you. So we're going to discuss with this episode. It was a panel. It was one of the panels at TimeGate. And it's really an open forum. You're going to hear other people talking. I, I think it's a great discussion. I reviewed it before uh, starting this recording. And we'll do a kind of a breakdown afterwards. One of the things that Diana and I have been working on since the first month, would you say, or two that we knew each other? So for years now? Well, is... no, not that long. I would say about six months in, but definitely. Okay. Well, this is something that we've had under our hats for a long time because nothing is official. You know, we don't know if anything is going to come of it. But we are allowing the um, – we, we bring it up in the panel, and so you are going to hear it in the panel for the first time. We'll be interested to hear uh, your comments, and you know, if you're interested in reading what we want to present, um, let us know. So, But we'll get into that a little bit more after the discussion. Let's get right to the panel. The main discussion. I'm David Reed with GateWorld, and I'm here with Stargate authors Diana Drew Botsford and Melissa Scott. We're at a – at a roundtable discussion at uh, TimeGateCon in Atlanta, Georgia. Ladies, thank you for uh, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you. Um, how long have you guys been Stargate fans? Ooh, let's see. I was I started watching. I watched it casually uh, SG One when it was on the air. Um, my partner was ill at the time, so I just didn't have a lot of. Uh, a lot of space to watch it. Then got rehooked on it when my dear friend Joe Graham said, What? You never watched Stargate Atlantis? You must. Start from the beginning, don't read anything, watch the show. I watched The Rising. I said, Oh, 
Yes, and then spent obscene amounts of money on the DVDs. So you started I, with Atlantis. I, I really did. I really did start with Atlantis, although I then went back and watched all of SG-1, too, um, explaining to my tax person why I, all of these DVDs are entirely deductible. Exactly. Yeah, they don't of, understand that. It's That's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, seriously, you can maybe. that. No, you can't. It's, it's, no, research. It's, it's research. It's, it is research. Bonafide research. Absolutely. Yeah, sure you betcha. Diana? Well, believe it or not, I'm a very late bloomer to what has become one of my all-time favorite television series, Stargate SG-1. I am very dear friends with Lindsay Allen, who does the cover art, and we met online because we are fellow Sorkinites, Aaron Sorkin fans, and we finally got to physically meet when Bradley Whitford was doing Boeing Boeing on Broadway. A whole bunch of us from England and France and all over the U.S. got together in New York, and she and I are sitting and having lunch, and she's like... Do you know SG-1? That's an approximation of her accent. And I'm like, no. <laughs> what is you it? Heard of it? Stargate. And I'm like, yeah, I remember Stargate. Because I was asked to work on Independence Day with Dean Devlin and turned it down because I was getting married. Um, so she goes, go watch it because I think you should write for it. I'm like, huh? So I knew, knowing what she does on it, I went home and I watched the pilot. And I went, okay, this is really cheesy, but yeah. ooh. Wonder. I haven't felt the sense of wonder in so long. Because I love Battlestar Galactica, but I'm sorry, it never gave me a sense of wonder. And I come from Star Trek, which is all about sense of wonder. And I just got hooked. That was it. I mean, I was, I, I devoured all ten seasons in, and this is just like, what, three years ago? I devoured all ten seasons in, I think, two weeks. Wow. It was summertime. And <laughs> I just... You know, I, after the first season, I was like, that's it. Got to buy the DVDs. And first, I bought them used on eBay. I bought the first two seasons, and I was like, forget this. I want to buy them fresh. So then I bought all ten seasons, and then I bought the box. Set, and then <laughs> I have them all ripped on my media drive, and I have them on iTunes and all over the place. And then I watched Atlantis. I was like, oh, this is fun, because, yes, this is furthering the sense of wonder. And then talking about sense of wonder, Stargate Universe, I mean, you know, there were some stumbles, but I think that, that we, as writers, we have to be allowed to stumble mm -hmm. in order to continue to give you, as consumers of story, fresh material. You have to let us make mistakes in order to occasionally strike gold. So I find this interesting. You started... Uh, watching the show with the idea in the back of your head that you were going to write a novel for it at some point. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, that was all along. Was what, what fodder is there in here? And I went nuts as a writer because the whole franchise is about threads, ironically enough, yeah. the yeah. title of the season eight episode. But the whole franchise is this grand tapestry into which they just keep laying threads down and you're like, oh, I'm going to pick a couple of those and a couple of those and a couple of those and I'm going to weave this together. Yeah. And look what I get! Wow! Yeah. And it's fun. Yeah, it's such a complete universe. There's so much that you can pick up out of it. So many different threads to play but with. But room for growth. Is yes. 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 No? Well, I don't feel it's like that with Star Trek per se. I, I mean, I know I love Star Trek franchise, but I feel that there's more unfinished threads that we haven't found the ends to. Yes, I'll, yeah, I agree with you totally. And it's, 
In part, it's because the background feels so deep, and I think it's also that it's so connected to the present day. I mean, it, it's relatable. It, it's secret history, which is a great trope anyway. But it also means that you can weave in the real world and things that matter in this world. The mythology, history, the military. I love yes. military science fiction. Me so too. You get all that. Uh, one question I've got is, what is what is the one element that you have to keep in mind when you're writing Stargate that isn't there in writing for, say, Star Trek or some other genre? It's present day. Yeah. It's, it's us. And that's, in some ways, that's kind of nice because you don't have to build the world in quite the same way. You can assume a familiar, familiarity with the technology. But you have to go back a couple of years because it's not really present right. day. It's like 2003, 2004. Right. Um, we're 2000. We're just, uh, homecoming is just after the most recent presidential election. So you can weave a little bit of that in. Yes. To, to yeah. it. I yes. mean, in Four Dragons, I have him playing with the first generation iPod, trying to find a place on the cargo ship to plug it in to play some music. Because <laughs> yeah. the Simpsons had just, the, a soundtrack of the Simpsons had just come out, and he wanted to play it for Carter. And I had to go back, because I had this idea, so I had to go and research, okay, when did the first iPod come out? In the drift, I just wrote a scene with a USB flash drive, I sent it to my critique partners, and they're like, whoa, flash drives, be careful. And I'm like, no, it's 2004. They came out in 2000. Yeah. They have them. It's cool. Yeah. They didn't have 10 gigs for five cents, but exactly. you know, <laughs> yeah. they had them. The one yeah. gigs were up. So you do have to occasionally watch out for yep. that. Yes. Um, I would say, for me, the biggest thing is um, how it's different from Star Trek is Star Trek with the exception of Deep Space Nine, and even Deep Space Nine, I find that the media time writers are hesitant on this. Star Trek is very much about the external through line, the what's going on out here. Stargate is this very healthy balance of the internal storyline and the external storyline. But you have to be careful because at the end of the day, you can't do anything. You can't cut off a leg. You can break a leg, but you can't cut off a leg. Yeah. Unless you throw them back in the sarcophagus. Right. You, know. you can do that. You can wound your characters right. and make them evolve emotionally. Right. But you have to be careful. It still has to be true to their characters. And every writer is going to have a different interpretation. We were talking yesterday about yeah. how we both love writing Jack. Yes. But I'll bet that from a reader's perspective, we both write him differently. I suspect so. Have you read Melissa's? No. Have any of you read Four Dragons yet? I've got that ready yet. Okay. Actually, you did read it. Uh, I, I've, I've um, got it. Uh, like, it's uh, a fast uh, read. It's actually, like bathroom reading. Actually, I, I was just reading. I was reading Four Dragons over breakfast this morning, which was a great treat, I must say. And I think that our jacks are very similar. They're, the differences are actually when we've set them. Yes. Because you're. What is that? That's season seven. Season just seven. after Daniel got back. Right and. Homecoming is postseason ten. I mean, he's a general. He's a general. He appears. He is very wily and Jack-like, but he is not the field officer anymore. He's the weight not of responsibility. He's also yeah, more settled, I think, at that point. Yes. You know, I yeah. mean, I, it's season seven. I mean, Daniel's just back, and he's very unsettled. Yeah. And the drift. I have it that he just became a general. And he's uncomfortable because he's not digging the paperwork, yep. basically. Yep. You know, and he's having to, I mean, Hammond has a talk with him at one point saying it's about strategy now, not tactics. Yeah. 
and you're going to have to shift focus. And at this end, by Homecoming and by all of the Legacy series, he's he's definitely got the grand strategy in mind. Melissa, how involved were you in establishing? It's six books, right? Yes. How involved were you in establishing where those six books would go? And Just, what were you most excited about? The three, the three writers, the three of us who were involved in it, myself, uh, Joe Graham, and Amy Griswold, basically sat down and proposed the full arc. We really did not think Fandemonium would be able to buy it. We really weren't sure. We doubted that MGM would go for it, but we thought there was no harm in trying. Joe had sold um, a standalone SGA novel, Death Game, and so we had the contact at Fandemonium, and we, we had been talking about, you know, sort of casually as fans, where could, you know, you've stuck Atlantis on Earth. That's intrinsically unstable. What could we do? How would we, how would we evolve if we could, how would we evolve the show if we ran the world? And we realized that what we were looking at was actually plausible within the arc of the show. So we worked out the full six book arc, sent it to Fandemonium, who sent it to MGM, and they bought it. What was your goal in creating the, the show was it was it to, to put Atlantis I know I don't want you to, to spoil anything but was it was it to return ultimately to an episodic world of Atlantis where you could continue to tell stories after this or was it to wrap up the whole thing permanently we don't have the right to wrap it up it was it was entirely to do it to return it to the episodes to or to create another season that could if nothing else in readers imagination be followed by yet another imaginary season. So you take what's happened in the end and you say, okay, this is what we're stuck with. Here's how we're going to resolve this. Yeah, here's, here's where we carry on from here because, and, and this was something we talked about as we were, once we really had serious interest from MGM, how, how to continue uh, the story, the characters' stories in particular Rodney McKay because over the over the 5 years of the series his story is completed he evolves from the real jerk who deserves to get sent to Siberia into the man at the end of season 5 who this is genuine yes he is genuinely a hero and in, a, in an entirely Rodney McKay sort of way. Absolutely. He's still McKay. He's, he's unmistakably McKay, but he is the best that McKay could possibly be. And we had and, that discussion on the Seizure podcast when he came back that in some ways he had lost some of that. Yeah. He regressed. Yeah. Like staring at Jennifer Spence's boobs. Yeah. That was the hardest thing to come up with was what to do with McKay, but I think we found something suitable, which I can't spoil. How, how have you... Um, how they've been, the books that have been published been received so far? We've had very good feedback. Um, and we've, the sales have been good. A Fandemonium has been very pleased with the sales. So far, so good. Are they only paper, or can you get them as e-books? Yes. Yes, they are e-books. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Crossroads Press. This is something that happened really recently. Yes. We were all very excited about it. It was they shocking they what happened. That's very exciting. Yeah. Like hotcakes. It's a huge market. Yeah. I mean, that brings me to the second question I wanted to ask. Since we're moving more into the electronic age, how do you guys feel about your stuff going to ebooks and just yet 
get a reader and download it as opposed to an actual paperback or hardback. Because I feel like, you know, if I were to publish an ebook, it's not a real book. You know, they've not right. gone to the trouble to publish it for me. Am I actually published? Because yeah. what they're doing, I can do online right hey, now. They pay me for it. Here, here's the That's deal true. with that is that you have the same attitude as the big writing organizations right now, but it's changing. I mean, yep. there are there are big writers in all the genres that are leaving their agents, they're leaving their publishing houses, and they're just setting up shop themselves, kind of like what Radiohead did with that album a couple of years ago. They're setting up shop themselves. Look at Stephen King. King. Wasn't Ur yeah. uh, Ur, an e-book it's only? Great. Yeah, and it's great, too. Yeah. My problem with the e-books is, is that... It, it opens you up to loot lost income. I've already seen illegal people saying, here's the torrent to get, you know, to rip it now. You don't have to pay for it anymore. Well, you know what? Yeah. We need that money so that we can sit and write you another one. Yeah. Yeah, that is the unfortunate flip side of the technology because, yeah, as a reader... I am. I love ebooks. I have. Ever since I got my iPad, I have been. <laughs> well, I've spent way too much money on books. <laughs> Again, it's insidiously easy. But it is very easy. Yeah. But the problem is that it's also very easy not to pay, and that's. Yeah. You know the, the theory being that, if someone downloads the book for free, maybe they'll pay for the next five. I hope. Um, I don't necessarily believe that to be the case. I don't either. It's like, oh, this is so easy, I'll just do it again. Once you have committed the first wrong, it's yes. so easy to commit yeah. the next one. Exactly. And there's a couple of big science path. fiction writers who are big believers in allowing that. They think copyright should go away and then it should just be this way. And I'm sorry, but I know human nature. I mean, look at, the, look at where our economy is today. That's a perfect demonstration. Greed runs the world. If I can get this for free, why should I bother to pet? Well, it's stupid, though, because in the long run, unless you guys get paid, you'll stop writing. Yes, I think I'm smart enough to figure yeah, that out. That's Honestly, the... I'm going and buying e-copies so that, like, because when I was a broke student, I have favorite books, and I bought a second-hand copy. So I know my author never made any more money, so now I can go and buy a nice replacement e-copy, and they'll actually get paid for it. Yeah. Exactly. And in some ways, actually, sometimes even more. Yeah. yeah I was we'll see more profit. Percentages yeah. are different. The downside for me, I mean, Lindsay's my friend. She's a very dear friend of mine. Yeah, no no uh, well, no, they do the covers no, still. No, they the do covers. the covers. But, like, I'm a Kindle reader. Black, it's black, you know, on, on gray. So it Not loses. Really I mean, I love the color. She's working now on the sequel. And I brought back very high-res shots of glaciers down there for her to use. And it's going to be gorgeous in color, but it ain't going to look like much on the Kindle. So then, there's a question. Are these actual original art, or are they stock photos from... Yes and yes. Yes. <laughs> yes and yes. The st- on, the, on the pictures of the characters, that is the one challenge. She has a very limited pool of what she can work with. Um, but they will occasionally go to bat and argue. She and Tom? Yeah. And Tom together join up and will climb down MGM's throat to get what they feel is best for the story. Originally, the shot of Jack in this was totally wrong for this cover. He's supposed to be contemplative and unsettled. And they had something just more, I don't know, kick back and and silly, and it didn't fit the mood. So they fought for it, and they won. I mean, I love Phantom Money. Yeah, they've they've been very... Very sensitive to 
both the show and I think the author's work within it. I mean, that's been really a pleasure to work with them, I have well, to say. They're, they're fans, too. Yes. They know right. what they want to read. They know the shows. They know what works yeah. for the most part and what doesn't. But they're and human beings, too. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yes. I had pneumonia earlier this year, and then a lot of things have happened. I had to delay my turn, and, and that I don't do that. I'm early. I deliver early, yeah. but it's just been a bad year, and Sally is like, you do what you need to do to make it great, because we know that's what you want to do. And, yeah. you know, as it is, I mean, there is a bit of a bottleneck with MGM because, you know, they're going through this huge reshuffle. They're trying to figure out who they are and what to do with the franchise. Yeah. Do you go the Star Trek model? Do you create a new model? So the time that they can devote to approving the books, it's not as fast as we would like. Yes. And that's what slows things down. So, they, I mean, they're they're happening, and Sally's on them and pushing. Yeah. But there's a, yeah, there's only so much that can be done there. Like, right. And really, from what I understand, in comparison to Paramount, MGM is piece of cake. Yes, um, Paramount is a machine. It, I mean, there's so but many years really of history. controlling. Exactly. Yes, because yeah. I, 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 I've done Trek novels for Paramount, and right. I was somewhat apprehensive um, when we turned to the manuscript of Homecoming because it was much freer than anything that I've ever done for track. I've done two, two track novels. And even though we were being assured by Sally that, no, no, really, this is fine, I was waiting for the Paramount um, Iron Hand to move through the manuscript. And it didn't. It really was a much more, much more enjoyable um, experience and a lot more. You know, I really felt comfortable that we were gonna get to do a real season. We were but don't get you think the advantage to this for us as writers and for the readers is that because there are certain things that MGM is like, no, this yeah. is the way this character has to be. But yeah. generally speaking, we are allowed to take risks. Yes. And with a show that's got a franchise that has three hundred and how many episodes? Right. To be able to tell honest, good stories that are going to be gravitating to you, we have to take risks. Yes. I mean, it's scary, the risks we take sometimes. Yes. And, you know, but yeah. I think that as a reader of the books, too, I want fresh stories. Yeah, we're being allowed to... We, we were basically told that we did not have to reset to zero at the end of this. At the end wow. of the season... It, no, we couldn't kill any major characters. We can't permanently maim anybody, but we can move the story forward. And that is, that's a gift. That is so exciting as a writer. Well, what they're saying, too, it's not just, you know, you're able to, what they're saying is that you, you're continuing the story and we believe that you know what we're reading here is actually going to take place. It's not like oh, do whatever you want. It's not real. It's 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 fan made. It's it's contrived. Just do whatever you want. It's not that at all. You know. So if they did come back at some point, there's a possibility that you know the whatever came later on would be built on that. There's a possibility. I a dream. A total dream. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, because like I know Joss Whedon did the Buffy comic, which was a canonical season eight, do you think, since there is an appetite for people to read media tie-in novels, that they're heading a bit more towards where they decide not to make the show, because I know after seven years, mm. contracts get reset and they become much more expensive to make, 
that it is a way for them to lucratively continue the franchise to do you know, not just one-off novels where they have no relative relationship to each other, but like canonical additional seasons. You think that's something that they probably will be in the be become more interested in, or it just happened that yours was that way. The media tie-in business is struggling right now, as is everything. Um, in large part, it's because the writers are ahead of the curve and see where it should go as far as ebooks. Okay. Unfortunately, Sally has embraced this immediately. Mm-hmm. So there is the chance with this that it could continue to thrive. Whereas a lot of the other publishers aren't getting it, and they're getting stingier. And quite frankly, any promotion we as the writers have to do ourselves. Okay. Um, so who knows where it's going to go? Reading is not a dying art. That was a lie. The thing is, is that ebook sales, like in a year, have gone up 138 percent. I believe I, I, I heard there that I think it was in March. It was the first time in history that ebook sales in novels have actually eclipsed actual. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was in February. Right. Yeah, I read a quote. But they don't want to be honest about that. No. The publishers don't want to tell you that. They wanted to make it look like reading is a dying art, and it's not. No, this is not. But Amazon, Amazon said. Not excluding books that are not available in electronic versions, but they sold 105 ebooks for every 100 paper books. Mm-hmm. Wow. And when you figure that there are some, like I know, I go look, no, no e copy, no e copy. So yeah. it really, to be a fair comparison, it should have probably been a bigger percentage. I mean, I can't speak for anyone. I'm mildly dyslexic. I've always loved to read. But now that I have a Kindle, I'm reading three times as fast. I'm like sitting there. I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe how fast I'm reading. I've read two books in a day, where I've just taken a day off. Yeah, the Dyslexic Society of America did a study that if you use a large font and it's just one paragraph on the screen at a time, if it's only one paragraph, there isn't that distraction with the eye. I cannot believe how fast I can read, and it's just... I'm a slow reader, too, real. and I read faster on my Kindle. Yeah. Oh, that's I'm a fast reader. I read faster. It's bad. Why is it like you're sitting there going, going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You're like, okay, next book. <laughs> it's fun. You're, like, physically like, holding like it? physically holding it? books. I mean, I'm probably going to move to, to Kindle and stuff, but I think... Well, I, I mean, like, I have... I'm a, bo- I'm a science fiction yeah. book collector. My father had one of the top collections in the United States, and I inherited some of it. And I'm building. So there are 10 living authors who, when they publish a science fiction book, these are original novels, I would buy two copies, one that I never open because that immediately defaces the value. I would immediately wrap it, put it away, and then the other one to read. Now I just buy one to wrap up. And, you know, like Alan Steele is one of the people I collect. He's got another book coming out like any day now. Woo-hoo! And I will buy one, put it away. Get them to sign it at some point, and the other one I just Kindle download five seconds later. So who are your other nine authors? Uh, Paul Melko, Toby Buckell, uh, Toby Buckell, uh, and both of them are just phenomenal. Um, Stephen King, uh, believe it or not, Stephen Kuntz, C O O N T S. He's mil- it's military science fiction. It's like Clancy, but it's with the Navy. Yes. And I, whenever I'm writing Stargate, I am reading Coons because just that whole tight Elmore Leonard, who's my other writer that I collect, um, that kind of tight cadence. You I write what like. you read. You do. Yeah. You're very heavily. I, I went on a Pern binge, and it's affected. <laughs> That's a little different. I haven't read Pern since I was a kid, and I was talking with a Dragon friend about it. it. What would make a great movie. 
Yeah. Talk about your being your. I love R. Ruth. Oh, I want Ruth. Ruth would be awesome. Yes. So. Actually, the, you're right, though. There are people that, and there are people I can't read when I'm writing myself. Yeah. Don Winslow, mystery writer, thriller writer, has such an incredibly distinct voice that I can't read him when I'm writing, and I have to exercise him before I can write again. It's bad. Wow. And I can't read any like the big new trends in sci-fi are original science fiction, are first person, and first person or third person present tense. And this traditional third person, I mean, you'll have multiple POVs, but it's third person, immediate past tense. It's hard enough being a screenwriting professor where they're writing immediate present tense, omniscient, moving to this. But that would just totally beat me up. Which character do you least relate to and is most difficult to write? Mm. Ooh, that is a good one. Own up to it. Come on. <laughs> Once you figure it out. Oh, well, it's, it's... And when you have a writing partner, do you I... ask them to write it? Yes. Or you seek and... someone out who can, speak, who can speak their voice? Oddly enough, as much as I like Taylor as a character, her head is a very hard place for me to get into. I didn't know her that well. But there's enough that you can figure out in the background, I think. And Joe has a real gift for her voice, thank God, because that is, Taylor is the character who is immediately hardest for me. Oh, she, she's awesome. Okay. She's, she is a great character. Yeah, she, I think she's, um, on, this is strictly speaking from watching the mm-hmm. show here, unfortunately. You speak up? Sorry, strictly speaking from watching the show. Um, I've always thought she was an interesting counterpoint to the rest of the team because Taylor's there and she's very much, this is my take on it, the person that, yes, uh, Stargate Atlantis, you people were basically good and your ideals align with the ideals of my people, except when they don't. Yes. She's quite prepared to turn around and say, if you do that again, we're over. Yeah. And that, those are some of the points, that I've, points at which I found her as most interesting as a character. And her, um, my favorite Taylor episode is still the Queen because, of course, I'm afraid that I am exceptionally fond of the Wraith. <laughs> and she does some cool things with them in those books that the series should have done. Thank you, thank yes. you. So, but that there was there are a bunch of connections that were hinted at in the series, and there, it was a thread that was never picked up and fully, fully followed, and. The other nice thing about doing novels as opposed to episodes is you actually have room to do so many more little plots, little scenes. Character beats. That would be cut, and rightly cut, from an actual filmed episode. Mm-hmm. And that's such a luxury. Yes. More humor, too. Humor's fun to write. Oh, yes. Especially yes. when it's during dark times. Yes. Yeah. Bittersweet scenes are the best. Yeah. Diana? Um, I've changed, you know. I would say, first off, what I've knew right away is that there are certain techniques in writing the different POVs. I'm a big believer in not is it just the dialogue that has to sound like the character, but that the action description, I like very deep POV, so I like even the action description, like Tilk scenes, it has a certain big fantasy, heroic cadence and meter to it. Jack is more cynical, uh, witty, ironic, more pop cultural reference. Daniel tends to 
say, beat, beat, pause, hesitate, even in action description, it's, it's always beats a three with his thing. And Sam, I mean, Carter is always looking at things from a scientific perspective. Analytical. An analytical perspective. Like, I just wrote a scene where she's like, thinking, oh, you know, I think it's maybe five to ten knots right now. She's thinking about the wind speeds, because wind plays a lot to do with the Jack would think about that. No, that's not where his head's at. Um, Hammond, I love writing because, uh, you know, he was in the Vietnam War. He's a Texan. And um, I, I don't know, there's just something about his cadence that I find fascinating. Um, I would say that when I wrote for Dragons, the hardest for me to write were Sam and Daniel. I really had to work very hard. But in this book, um, I'm not having that trouble for some reason. And I think it's because, you know, we were talking the other day about don't read the Amazon reviews. Yeah. Okay. I have 19, <laughs> there are 19 reviews for Four Dragons on there. 15 of the 19 are five star reviews which is amazing. And then four are one-star reviews. And I, I mean, and I read them, and they, these were Daniel diehards, whereas really this is, it's about Daniel, but my, both these books are more about Jack and the journey he's going on from becoming a colonel to a general. Um, and they didn't like that. They hate Jack. I'm like, how can you watch this series and hate Jack? <laughs> yes. So, um, but I took to heart what they said and I thought about it. So in the sequel, Daniel is much more um, proactive without it hurting Daniel. Plus in season eight, that's what was going on. In, I mean, which is where the drift takes place. Daniel is much more now, he's out there and Jack's having to sit back. And Daniel's not as afraid to call Daniel on his crap. You know, so I got to take advantage of that. So I guess what it is is that Daniel season eight I find easier to write than Daniel season seven right after he descended because Daniel didn't know who he he was. That's right. He doesn't know who he is. So I was struggling with who are you? And um, by the end of the book, he's found himself, and I guess I did too. (laughs) Yeah. You know, he realizes what, you know, it takes place right after Orpheus, which is really where the beginning of that part of the journey is, is who am I now? Mm-hmm. He's starting to remember some of who he was. I don't even mean the memory stuff. It's more about why, you know, it's, it's emotionally, what's my path now that I've descended? Clearly something up there I didn't like. That would be a hugely traumatic experience. Because you're right, you can't... Ooh, I'm naked in the middle of a field. And then he knows, he can't <laughs> remember things that happened up there. Imagine where you, you come yeah. back after a year and you didn't know what you've done. Right. No. Yeah. What did I do? What did I do? Be? That yeah. would be you know? really What did I go easy. through? Yeah. Right. And I don't like those ascended people anyway, so that's just me. So. <laughs> well, then you'll definitely like the sequel because there is some uncool things going on. Thanks to some ancient technologies that mess things up in a big way. Yeah, the ancients are an interesting bunch. They're littered. They're bugs. Yeah, why? I do wonder about an advanced species that keeps leaving these world-shattering devices, and I mean that often literally, just sort of lying around. That's what the drift's about: is that they leave a a, a device that causes continental drift. I mean, the the answer, the the true answer, is that it. It facilitates storms. Yes, you yes. know. But in consequence of that, it's like, who the hell are these people? <laughs> you yeah. know, the, this we're, we're you know we're uh, uh, you, you look at stuff we we've left things like nuclear weapons lying around. Yeah, but we were under the impression that these people were so enlightened. 
and it turns out really? not really. Well, the guy from Dragon Con, uh, Joe Campbell, yeah. mm-hmm. was telling us that he somebody had left a real P90 yeah. at Dragon Con, and he picked it up and took it away from loaded. Them. That was loaded. Oh, that's against Dragon Con policy. Well, yes, yes, it it's, it's against the law. Yeah, okay. <laughs> let, let me clarify the story because it was actually an airsoft P90 because he went up giving it to me. But he, somebody just left it laying around. Oh, so it wasn't a real It wasn't P90. a real one. Because uh, uh, I have a real P90. The toys can be <laughs> scarily authentic. Oh, yeah. yeah. But the real Especially P90, deadly back. accurate. And really is. I mean, the first time I shot it, 50 yards, hit the bullseye. I'd never shot a gun before in my life. Wow. <laughs> They're that easy and it's so lightweight. They're awesome. It's, it's a great guy. I felt tough with it. I'll admit it. I had friends drive like a hundred miles just to come hold my gun. <laughs> Fellow Stargate fans, and they would immediately like get into the stands and stuff. You know, the jack. They put on the harness and they rest their hand here, and they'd be like, "Oh man, I'm cool." Are you sure you're not originally from Texas? <laughs> no, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker, but I have fun riding Hammond. Yeah. You know, it's like I took like the classic uh, cliche of when fishes fly in the net, when fishes fly in the net, you know, and, and I changed it to when cattle run into corrals because that's what a Texan would think, you know. And you know what he went through in Vietnam, he flew, and he flew against MIGs, yeah. you know. And he, I had it in the first book that he was involved with some of the biggest, worst air battles that the U.S. put on. We had a disaster going on in the Vietnam, years, yeah. you know, that it was just not, it was not well run like some of the battle skirmishes have been in the Middle East. So, you know, forget your feelings about the Middle East, but the fact is we've had brilliant generals involved, and we've had brilliant strategy involved, and that wasn't was, the case. There was a lot of strategy that was hard-learned in World War II in Korea that was forgotten and they had to relearn it years and years. So for Hammond to have gone through that and still be a dedicated lifetime career officer and to know all along that eventually at some point he was going to meet re-meet four people that he dealt with in 1969. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. that's cool. Yeah. I love that episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, yeah, I just rewatched that. I, I just, you know, I find the whole franchise to be comfort food. We're actually doing, um, Joe Graham and I are doing a follow-on to, to um, Mobius, which one of the threads is 1969. That, that's, uh, that is a major change point between the Sam of the alternate universe and uh, our, our well-known Carter. Um, that, in fact, Jacob Carter was killed in Vietnam because Hammond did not know he was going to survive. Hmm. And that that makes a difference in how Sam, how the two Sam's lives were, how they see each other, how they see the world. Now that's a fun character to write for, Jacob and Selmak and their internal yes. conversations oh, yes. with each other, because there's a few scenes like that for Dragons. Where they're giving each other crap. Turn that's on fine. the italics. Turn off the italics. Yes, <laughs> but it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. And Selmak was a very special Tokra. <laughs> well, he understood humanity after yeah. he got inside. Only well, embraced them. I mean, yeah. he felt you he know he stole yeah. Tokra technology yeah. for them. You know exactly. He got it. He got what they were about. Well, last time we had Carmen here, and I was talking with him. One of the what things a great guy. I, I told him, mm-hmm. it's got to be like having schizophrenia, having voices inside your head. And he was like. 
yeah, that's exactly what he was. How he would. But there was him. order to that, you know. With the schizophrenia, yeah. it's like you know all over the place. Whereas this this one conscious, but still, I mean, you'd be going out of your mind. <laughs> you know? I'm trying to sleep. Shut up. You know, we need rest. Yeah. Um, what kind of stories do you guys want to do next on the horizon? You know, are you not thinking? You're not thinking that far. General sweeping ideas. Do you mean Stargate stories? or anything? Stargate specifically. What stories do you think in the Stargate universe have not been told that you want to talk about? Ooh. Do you want to? A little. Okay. Well, David, as you know. <laughs> David Reed. It's, I think it's appropriate. Okay. Venue. Yes, this is where we could announce it. Well, it's not officially. We're waiting on MGM, but um, along with Keith D. Candido from Star Trek Realm, the three of us have developed a very intense proposal for a six-part post-Stargate SG-1 Atlantis series that actually ties into a little bit of what they're doing, but that's cool. just one thread. Yeah. Of, it benefited. Yes, but it has to, it, it's on the Hammond, and it deals with some other things, and uh, General, it's General O'Neill and Colonel Carter and Tilk and Vala and uh, the whole nine yards and lots of repercussions from all ten seasons a lot and of all five, five seasons of Atlantis. <laughs> lots of repercussions. It's called uh, Stargate Oblivion. And uh, it takes place over several galaxies. And, uh, I mean, this is one of the things uh, I was asked in that early interview I think I did with Chad where he said, you know, if you were going to write the next Stargate movie, because I've written, screenwritten also, what would you want to do? And I've always said, uh, have some of their past efforts come back to bite them in the butt. That's why I love the franchise. Yes. <laughs> I've always wanted to do something screw up. with yes. the four great races. Yep. And, you know, that's, that's been, everyone always talks about Heliopolis. And, the, and you know, so who knows? Who knows? Right. Well, we've got, there are the, the thread that niggles at me in Atlantis is the rogue Asgard that appear for two oh, episodes. Please, yes. that was wonderful. And that, I would love to do something with that. And of course, I would also like to pursue the Wraith, but that's just me. I recognize that's a special trait. Are the Rogue Asgard at all in these six books? Not in these six. Okay, but that's something you'd want to go back to. That's that's something that we've we've had we've to- we've tossed around. Should once we for once we finish this to propose next. I'd also, quite frankly, I would love to write the closing to the Stargate Universe story. I would love to. Destiny, where to go? I would love to. Just love to do it, especially after epilogue. But would you want to take it in your own direction, or would you want to do what... If, if you had the opportunity, would you want to get Brad's notes? Of course. See where he was going to go? Yes. Over doing what you wanted to do with Equal. Because I have my own crazy ideas, too. <laughs> <laughs> but... Brad Wright, are you kidding? Oh my God, I'd be totally honored to do anything that he had envisioned. I, I mean, I've learned a lot about storytelling from him. I have immense respect for him. I can't wait to see what he writes next. Cannot wait. Yeah. I've got a quick question. Do you guys, have you had like an inkling for some sort of story in the back of your head for a Stargate? And you just sat and just wrote it with no, no idea of publishing it, just write it and get out of your head? Is there any sort of stories like that that kind of sit on the Not Stargate stories, no. Not. Nothing. 
Life's too short. <laughs> We're, we just, um, Amy, Joe, and I just sat down for four days to try to plot the sixth book in detail. I mean, we know what is happening in a broad sense, but we were really trying to get the details worked out and figure out who is writing which pieces of the plot. And we're going to have to get back together again in September to do some more of it. So you do it physically? You don't Skype it? We, we, we Skype. No, we normally, we normally do everything by... Uh, Skype or email or um, we've got a secret live journal um, but this we actually it was very helpful to be physically in the same place and able to bounce ideas off of each other and see each other's expressions uh, particularly for me I'm very visual and it's very helpful so to see people's reactions because <laughs> I mean I can go back to New York at any point so yeah. I'll have to get you to New York to do that but no, honestly, for writing, um, after I finish The Drift, my plan for the rest of the summer is I have an original novel that I have had a nibble from an agent, but she wants to cut down a little bit, and I want to work on that. I think it's healthy for my writing in general to do different projects. And because, I mean, writing is a craft that it is a business, so I don't really have time to write fan fiction. Yeah. Um, I guess this might be veering a bit into the realm of fan fiction because I know there's tons been written about it on the internet. But since you were talking about stories that are set post um, the TV series and, and Stargate, the various Stargate Atlantis SG One, SG, do you know is there any inkling of um, resolving the whole um, Carter O'Neill issue? Or oh is boy! That something read, read her books and then read our books. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yes, it is addressed. Yes, okay. yes, it is. That's huge. Logically. Yes. yes. Awesome. And or, or nicely. Maybe. Yes, I think so. Yes. Yes. So. I am not a shipper, but I, you, you would be a fool to not recognize. <laughs> yeah. The significance of their relationship. The reason, and I, the reason I raised it is I know there'll be a lot of people listening to the cast and be like, oh, they have to touch on that. So yeah. I thought it was a legitimate question. It's important to the foundation of that team, yes. that relationship. And if you ignore it, you're missing a very significant yeah. piece of the Yes. Yeah. Well, isn't that the reason we watch, we care about these programs? I don't mean to be difficult, but it's the relationships. Right, Between but that doesn't people. mean you want them to there get married. There are some people who right. might, might tune in just to watch the Stargate go whoosh sideways. Yeah. But most of us come back because the relationships between the people, whether or not they're romantic or erotic or non, but it's the, you know. But the thing is that what's wonderful as a writer, I find, like with Four Dragons, there are some moments that border on ship, but it's being very careful that... I, I'm a big believer in subtlety. Yeah. I'm a big believer in showing and not telling. And that's what RDA and MN and Tapping did. Oh, yeah. Yes. Look at uh, Beneath the Surface. Oh, yeah. Which is one of my time favorites. Yes. That was originally a scene. There's a scene that was written where they kiss and they're talking and expressing their feelings, and the actress said, eh, eh, nope, forget it. Not going to happen. This is the way we're going to do it. And it's so powerful when he talks about, I remember Homer, yeah. you know, with the short sleeve shirt, and he's really talking about Hammond, and she leans against his shoulder, yeah. and, you know, there's one good thing about all this. By talking around it, you create a tension, and you got to have tension in every scene. Yeah. It's just, what's the point? Yeah, why are you watching? Why are you watching? And then, um, 
not upgrades, uh, the sequel to Upgrades, Divine Conquer. Divine Conquer. Yep. There was dialogue written. And I think the restraint was such a was such a good choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, that really, because I found it so much more believable from because everything we'd seen. You draw your characters. conclusions rather than them well, drawing the conclusions for And you. everything you'd seen of the characters up until that point, mm-hmm. restraint was the obvious and most likely choice for the people that we've gotten to know so far. You know what? It's hard, though. The Drift takes place in early season eight. Yes. So um, it's even harder to write because, I mean, at one point I do have Carter thinking, and I've been so busy dating. Now that I'm dating, I've had so busy dating, I haven't been able to organize more team nights. So there's that thought. So that kind of early on establishes that. And then, you know, later on there is a moment where we know O'Neill admires Sam, but it could be the same way that I admire you. Yeah. Or you, or you, or you, or you. Yeah. It's more than that. It's an emotion. I mean, it's as human beings, we can admire each other. But you can as you can either enjoy it as a shipper, or you yeah. can just enjoy it as a like a bromance. It's just one happens to be woman, the other happens to be male. You have to be very careful with season eight. Yeah. Because of Pete. Of course, with Atlantis, we run into the same thing with with Shepard. Um, oh. Because uh, whether or not you ship uh, Shepard and Taylor. Um, that certainly, that is how I was reading the show for a very long time. I assumed that there was an attraction there, but you have to be careful and keep it within what the show has given you. Kanan, you don't kill him. I read it too. <laughs> no, he's, no, no, we, we don't kill him. We don't kill him. But they weren't married. They were different. Tri- that was a different culture. There are lots of other. Now. No, they weren't necessarily. He's on Atlantis. And not in season six. Not, 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 I mean, not in the legacy book. Not, not in. I haven't read them. Yeah, not in. Not as from what we see in season five. No. We don't know where he is. In fact, and we made the assumption not. When in in the finale, when Atlantis he's not there, Earth, he's not on. In fact, there is a line where she indicates that he's on the mainland. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He's still in Pegasus. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, Kanan yeah. is Kanan is a complication, but I think a very and a very plausible one. It, I, I found, and I, I'm having to dance sort of carefully around it because mm-hmm. I don't want to give away anything. Well, I mean, Taylor says in Sunday, the ways of my people are different. Yes. Diana and Melissa, thank you very much for uh, for taking the time to talk with us. So, appreciate right. it. Thank you. Thank you. you are listening to the Gateworld Podcast. That was the Stargate Writers Panel at TimeGateCon in Atlanta. I love TimeGate. You know, it's it's a little convention, but it has a lot of heart. You know, there's a lot of cool people that are there. Oh, I love the attendees, as as if you you've heard from listening to the podcast mm-hmm. and listening to the panel. Very thoughtful. These are these are very intelligent people. I think I think it's great to see just from listening to the panel how the Stargate writers, although yes, we are each writing our own interpretation mm-hmm. of Stargate itself, of the franchise and our own storylines. Um, I can tell from having talked with Melissa enough and having read uh, Jane Swallow and my own work, that we do try to at least not step on each other's toes, either mm-hmm. borrowing from each other's story, hacking from each other's story, or contradicting each other's mm-hmm. story. I mean, I know for me that's part of the reason why I keep reading them, in addition to being a fan first, mm-hmm. is the fact that if I'm going to do any more of these, I would like to have them dovetail into all the other ones that mm-hmm. have been done. 
Absolutely. I was really gratified by the discussion between the two of you about how you write Jack. And, you know, you start off by saying you probably write Jack very differently, but what I liked was you both came from the same place about what season is Jack, you know? And when you start from there, you start with the character, and you build off of him from there. You, you start with who he is at that time rather than who you want him to be for the story. And I think that's a great way to go. Well, you know, just go onto the Gate World forums and you look at the conversations that are still intently going on years after the show has been canceled about mm-hmm. the characters. It, mm-hmm. That's the whole beauty of this franchise is that the mm-hmm. characters are just so fantastic. So Stargate Oblivion is out of the bag. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, it's really sitting on MGM's desk along with other things. Yeah, we submitted this idea to uh, to Fandemonium. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just up to MGM at this point. So Fandemonium's website, I'll be linking that in the show notes. And if you're interested in a series of books that have to do with the story of the four great races, let them know. This is a community that has always thrived on participation of the audience and of the viewers if you want you know this series if you want other books if you want fandomonium to continue to put these things out you have to you know you have to go and buy them online or either at the bookstore and you know feedback is always important so you know we we appreciate any interest that anyone would have in in seeing a, a series like that so i'm very proud of it same thing for stargate atlantis legacy i know having talked to melissa that they got Many, many more ideas for a, you know, for a seventh season, so to speak, Mm -hmm. of Stargate Atlantis. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think letting Fandemonium know you're enjoying the books in any form or fashion is a great thing to do. Uh, I know Mm -hmm. Sally and Tom appreciate the feedback and the Legacy series is really a lot of fun. We are resuming, if all goes according to plan, uh, weekly podcasts as of, well, technically as of last week, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So Diana and I have drawn up a schedule with Darren's blessing, and we have some topics that I think you're going to be excited about. We have some special guests coming that I think you're going to be excited about. We've only had like one or two like celebrity um, faces on this show, and it's only because you know we've always had content that kind of came in front of that so we're going to be reaching out to some people and uh, and getting them on the show we'll give you a week in advance a week of heads up to uh, submit your questions to them via audio through the uh, podcast's uh, hotline or over mp3 so let's have a look at what's coming ahead september 26th we're going to be doing episode analysis and we're going to feature an episode that pretty much you know i think has really an enormous appeal, which is SG-1's window of opportunity. Uh, we're going to be dissecting the episode. You know, Diana, what, I, what I'd like to see you do is come in from a, a writer's standpoint. You know, the, I'd, I'd like to examine the mechanics of the episode, not just, oh, when Tilk was hit with the door, that was funny. You know, but I'd like to dissect this episode. I really would like to break it down. And so uh, window of opportunity is one of the ones that we're going to look at first. Let us know through webmaster at gateworld.net if you want us to feature any other episodes, and we will certainly take that into heavy consideration. There's 350 hours of Stargate to choose from. So that's happening on September the 26th. Then set for October the 3rd, we've got Open Line Night. It's been just about a year since we've had one of these, so we're going to be partying on uh, October the 3rd with Darren. We're bringing him back. So he is wrapping up uh, some things with school right now. I think he's got some kind of a thesis that's uh, due at the end of September, so um, we're going to be bringing him in for that. 
And then October the 10th, we're starting what's going to be called the Looking Back series. And that's when we're going to bring in special guests to reflect on uh, their years of Stargate and uh, discuss what they're uh, currently up to now. So that's the current outline for the next three weeks. Yeah, I think we'll have a lot of fun. And, um, you know, you're talking about bringing people in to have a retrospect. That open line night is a terrific opportunity for listeners to not just uh, ask questions, but also share your thoughts on your looking back on the franchise and where mm-hmm. you are today. Are you still watching it? If so, what still works for you? What doesn't work for you? How does the series still resonate for you? We've gotten a lot of feedback on, um, you know, people are still watching Stargate Universe and are coming across the end of it. And we're getting, I'm still getting voicemails about people who are, you know, frustrated with the cancellation because they get to the end of it and they're like, ah, no, this is unacceptable, which I completely understand. So if you want to give us a ring, it's 951-262-1647. You can leave a voicemail anytime, day or night. And uh, also, if you want to uh, send a message, Darren is still going through those messages, and uh, you can reach us through webmaster at gateworld.net. So that's where we're at. That's uh, the next three weeks of schedule and where we're at right now. And we'll also be looking at uh, books and uh, some big finish recordings and all sorts of different things having to do with the franchise. And again, if you've got any ideas and even shows that some of the actors have gone on to, Once Upon a Time starts up here in a few. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Rumpel Stillskin. Robert Carlyle. (laughs) Yes, Robert Carlyle, a.k.a. Rush. That'll be fun to talk about when that starts back up, too. There's a lot coming down the pike. I'm really excited about this fall. It's my favorite time of the year, and I'm spending it every week with you, Diana. So it doesn't really get much better than that. No, this is good. Television talk is always good. From Gate World, this is David. This is Diana. And we'll be talking to you soon on September the 26th for the Gate World Podcast. Uh,